Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is Metapol with me, Cactus. Today on the show, we're going to talk about the Great Reset, both the very real political base in which it originated and the conspiracies that have tried to take it over. We're also going to talk about the nature of political decline and economic decline and why the Great Reset isn't much to be feared as opposed to the Great Overload. First of all, what is the Great Reset? It's essentially a political and economic philosophy that seeks to change the tide or to redirect the current progress in global economics through various government measures. It was popularized at the Economic Forum in Davos, as well as in other areas such as the United Nations. In Canada, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has explicitly used the term in his political branding and his proposed policies. However, when this crossed over to the American realm, this was widely taken by believers in QAnon to be a sign that there was somehow some secret takeover of governments, somehow some communist coup, for example, in which Trudeau would try to undermine democracy, or which other politicians would try to accomplish the same. Obviously, this is very difficult, considering the existing governing structures, and there is no evidence to actually think that this is occurring. Nonetheless, this does follow a trend in not just conspiracy theories, but also in politics, where a very real grain of truth, that government spending is going in one particular direction, and that this is going to have drastic economic consequences, leads to a further spiraling out of control of these conspiracy beliefs and of the shadow boxing or projecting an image of an opposition that doesn't actually exist in real life goes towards. Now, before we address the elephant in the room, let's give a quick analogy. In 2009, then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton gave a button to Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. This button was supposed to have the word reset written on it, symbolizing a return to peaceful negotiations between Russian and American diplomats. Instead, the button was labeled overload, very symbolic of the ongoing tensions we have now between the states and Russia. This was quickly cleared up between Lavrov and Clinton's teams, but nonetheless, the analogy holds today, and there are much more significant consequences than a simple mislabeling. Essentially, much like I described before in my episode on Lebanon, government collapses are almost always due to incompetence, not malice. Remember that in that scenario, the government of Lebanon was undermined by a series of cultural and religious factors that led to corrupt politicians wielding patronage positions and soliciting bribes, which then led to a failure to provide basic government services which included clearing highly active explosives that were sitting in a port next to fireworks. This led to the two deaths of Lebanon, a term that I use to describe the slow, painful death of government incompetence in which the citizens slowly lost control of their lives and of the basic services that they demanded from the government, and the very real, hot, visceral event that was the port explosion. This model is incredibly useful in further analyzing government actions and in analyzing the way that government systems converge or tend to one result or the other. And this is very much the frame that we should be using in order to look at the so-called Great Reset, or what I will call the Great Overload. In order to understand this, we have to understand the fundamental thing that is at play here, 
which is that governments are engaging in a Faustian bargain. This is a term that's used to describe a deal in which one gives away their soul for some short-term reward. Obviously, the governments aren't actually engaging in any sort of satanic deal, but instead are trading away long-term economic growth and social stability for their perceived image and political success. The way this works out in practice is that they accelerate spending in very specific areas, including subsidizing the stock market, including bailing out specific industries, instead of allowing economic forces to resettle after the pandemic, which would yes cause the destruction of many businesses that are underperforming, but also allow for a market landscape that promises actual future growth. On the other hand, this method of subsidization leaves many businesses that were otherwise struggling even before the pandemic intact based on the government dollar, and this will then in turn be paid into by those who are successful in the future, which is fundamentally robbing Peter to pay Paul. This is completely separate from the issue of citizen relief, of actual payments to individual people, to those who may have lost their jobs. This is strictly a matter of addressing the corporate bailouts that occurred in governments such as the United States, governments such as Canada, and around the world. In fact, there is actually a higher level of stock performance in the United States right now due to this format of subsidies, due to this format of bailouts directed to those individuals, and because many people who have more disposable income now, because they're not necessarily going outside, spending money on things like travel, restaurants, etc., now have further money to invest. Ultimately, the simple message is this, that every business has a lifespan, and many businesses that are failing, many businesses that are fundamentally unsound, that fundamentally don't have the sufficient capabilities to continue progressing without a high degree of government subsidy, even in normal times, should not be arbitrarily saved. This is the same lesson that we could have drawn from the American response to the 2008 financial crash. And the states aren't alone here. Around the world, various government bailout packages, to some degree or another, have targeted specific industries. However, fundamentally, this industrial focus is not in the interest of the general public, because the money is ultimately coming from the more successful businesses and individuals of the future. There often is a significant misunderstanding of the problem of debt itself. The problem of debt itself isn't necessarily that there will be an out-of-control collapse with some certain amount of debt. While this may be an issue in some poorer countries, in most developed Western democracies, the actual fundamental problem is that money has to be paid back. And when that money is paid back, it is taken from taxes and is often taken progressively. So taken from businesses that are more successful and taken from individuals who are more successful in the economic market. While many argue that this is perfectly fine on the individual level, and I'm not going to necessarily give an argument in one way or the other on this episode, when used in a business context, this is simply counterproductive. Essentially what is happening here is that self-destructive businesses, businesses mind you that are solely based essentially in making profit, are being subsidized by those who would otherwise be able to reinvest and find more growth in themselves in the future. 
Moreover, because there is no active market for many of these businesses to continue in, more often than not, they're essentially engaging in financial tactics, such as stock buybacks, that allow them to gain further value in the stock market while not necessarily actually contributing anything towards the growth of their services. The other element here is that the risk would otherwise be internalized by investors. That is, that when you invest, you're essentially taking a gamble. You're taking an educated gamble that XYZ business would succeed and if it doesn't, then you essentially lose the money that you invested, if you invested in stock, for example. This risk should be boiled in to the way that financial markets actually work in actually calculating the price of any given stock. With that in mind, those who invested in these businesses who then collapsed due to the coronavirus pandemic should rightfully have their losses wiped out because the government is not in the business of guaranteeing said risk. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a risk and there would be no point in actually having an investment market system. However, there's a quite simple reason why government is functioning in this way, and that's because of corruption. Particularly in the United States, there is legalized bribery in the form of lobbying that many officials receive from the private sector that condition their behavior to support these specific industries to vote for giving further government money to them at the cost of other successful businesses and individuals in the future. I've already done extensive coverage on the degree in which corruption is both legalized and normalized in the United States. However, even in other areas where lobbying is more tightly regulated, there is still fundamentally a disconnect between the most economically beneficial circumstances and those that actually get constructed by governments. This is due to another sociological and psychological problem, loss aversion. There's tons of psychological literature on this effect, the most famous of which being the five stages of grief, essentially a process in which people deal with the loss of a loved one. However, the same effect is often strongly induced in the loss of a business or in severe economic times in general. There is generally a failure to acknowledge the basic reality that these losses are actually occurring in the first place. Instead, governments want a message of optimism that would further inspire the population and have a higher chance of essentially retaining votes come the next election. This creates significant erosions not only in business and in financial markets, but also in institutions including government, including universities, including hospitals, and including other areas of public life. In all these cases, there's a divergence between projection or expectation and reality. It's not hard to understand why this is fundamentally a problem. If you're planning for a situation that will never come, if you're expecting prosperity that is not actually ever going to occur, then there is going to be a structural problem with whatever plans are laid into place. There are also runoff consequences to the broader systems at play, including the broader structure of investment, including the broader structure of public infrastructure and in public funding of systems, and in education and the information space as a whole. This is because that when there is a tilt towards this false projection, towards this optimism that is completely unfounded and not based in evidence whatsoever, there is further influence on investors, there is further influence 
on media figures, on politicians, who fall for the trick. And when there's a critical mass of forces that are put into place that actually choose to go to this projection, then it can oftentimes be more beneficial to invest in or to promote this idea, even if you can see through it. That means that there is a collection of cynical actors who very much understand the economic realities at play. They understand that essentially, this is an ideological Ponzi scheme. But they're committing to the scheme and hoping to be able to sell before everything collapses. This widespread ignorance is what rewards insider information and power so much. Going a little bit further, we also need to analyze the cultural ramifications of these various processes. As we talked about earlier, cultural differences can create a failure in media systems as a whole, even when interpreting non-cultural issues, such as political scandals, economic numbers, and even scientific issues like the pandemic. When there is a fundamental contradiction between this projection and reality, there is a need for a broad conspiracy or a delusion. And in fact, this delusion is self-reinforcing, since if the economic incentives we talked about earlier already exist, then the networks or the media systems that promote this delusion, that promote these failures, are going to actually earn more money than those who are more insightful and who seek to tell the truth. The same thing is true in the political system, and all of this is enabled by the so-called culturalification of reality that I already talked about before. For a recap, that's the phenomenon in which, in which cultural separation is used to attack credibility, even though it's not actually based in any sort of realistic, measurable fact. There's also a fundamental biological problem with scarcity that's going to occur not because of a lack of resources, but actually because of a lack of progress, or a perceived lack of progress. Instead of actually measuring quality of life based on the circumstances at play, many actually adapt to actually interpret one's success as a measure of change, as how much better off they were than they were in the past. While most of the time, this lines up with what you actually want to be accomplishing in life, this is not good when there needs to be when there needs to be loss that's dealt with, when there is an event such as a pandemic that will create significant setbacks. Of course, there is the human capacity to reason, and there is the ability to understand that there does need to be shutdown, that there does need to be economic consequences because of this. This is why that this is actually a one time opportunity to actually bring the projections that we had, to actually bring the mistakes that were understood back into reality, to incorporate them back into the system because people can understand very easily that this is very much caused by the pandemic. However, when there is a false projection at play, there is the perception of growth. And in fact, there is the memory that is created of something that is better, even if that was actually never going to be the case in the first place. Then, when you inevitably, in the future, have a system that doesn't live up to the current expectations, then everyone who's participating in that system will feel a profound sense of loss and a profound disconcertion with reality. This will lead to higher rates of conspiracy belief, of delusions, because of the principle of explosion that I talked about earlier. People can justify their beliefs in QAnon or in uh, the... Ra 
or in mass racism conspiracies, and so on, because they have a fundamental lie that is already stuck in their mind, the lie of the projection of the future that is to come versus what is actually going to come, because the promises that politicians and media figures made to them didn't actually materialize, they feel like something is up, they feel like something is at play, and that undermines fundamental institutional trust, and that increases the likelihood that they will believe in these conspiracies. However, these conspiracies, particularly after they've infiltrated the mainstream, such as the racial conspiracies have, will then cause a further undermining of those institutions and a further undermining of both the ability to connect back with the real financial numbers and to actually combat conspiracy theories themselves. And to make all of this worse, it's amplified by the same negativity bias that's present on social media, where posts that will attract more anger, that will attract more comments, more conflict, will actually be promoted more frequently. All of this is responsible for a lot of the effects that I talked about in the earlier episodes, including political calcification, in which people become further and further emotionally attached to their political positions instead of basing them off of measurable realities, as well as the shadow boxing that occurs, this need to seek an enemy, because if there's a fundamental distortion of what's to come and you're not living up to the promises, then the easiest solution can often be to say, oh, this is X group that is to blame for it. This is the scapegoating effect, where someone seeks a scapegoat to blame all of the negative economic consequences on. You see this happening incredibly frequently in both the left and the right. Even though the grim realities that might follow from an assumption of, say, QAnon or racial conspiracy theories, or the conspiracy side of the quote-unquote Great Reset, would be much more grave than if it were just incompetence, this is actually something that people prefer to believe, because they prefer to have a sense of one singular enemy. In this way, there is a weird, morbid fascination with conspiracy theories, with shadowboxing, and with, and with assuming that anyone who is presiding over negative economic conditions is acting in bad faith. However, this creates a fundamental misdirection, and it allows parties to campaign based on just removing the enemy, instead of actually making sustainable, productive economic solutions. This is very much the scenario in the United States, where both parties are engaging in rampant corruption that fuels the very same economic destruction and false projections that have led these conspiracy theories to start in the first place. Another factor is that this is supposed to be mitigated by media systems, but as we've already talked about on almost every episode in the show, they are not living up to it, not in the States, and with regards to the economic numbers, not in any place across the West which I have seen. Looking at small sections of the Hong Kong media as well, I don't think this is necessarily present in most Asian countries, or in pretty much every country around the world, to overplay the economic recovery and to create this projection that is inevitably going to cause a disconnect from reality. And when that occurs, you can already see what happens such as in countries in South America, such as in the Middle East, where there has been conflict, where there has been war, where there has been civil unrest. Even in the United States, you can see this happening. Although these protests are often labeled as, say, anti-lockdown or Black Lives Matter, etc., they're very much a reflection 
of pre-existing economic circumstances and on a fundamental disconnect that has been propagated through U.S. financial policy for decades. What probably needs to happen is for a fundamental shift in government and for a fundamental shift in economic policy. However, the reason why these status quos have arrived is because they're successful in appealing to fundamental human biases. This is why they have such significant success in media, in politics, and in finance. Nonetheless, there are still methods of influencing political change, namely attempting to start a third party in the US, supporting any measures that actually promote a realistic sense of the economic future in any countries around the world, if any of those political forces exist. In terms of actually being able to adjust the fundamental incentives at play, the human-centered solution has always been my approach here. Everyone needs to step up. And it's not that hard when you're actually consciously thinking about the problem instead of letting those biological biases override it. When you're listening to this podcast, you're probably already engaging the parts of your thinking that you need in order to resolve these problems in order to see through the magic trick. And because of that, you're already contributing to the solution. You can contribute more by sharing the podcast, by making sure the good information gets out there. And that's honestly the best thing I can ask you to do today. Of course, as I said before, keep this in mind economically and make sure that you support any political efforts that seek to find this reality once again. However, one of the core things you can do is to like, comment, share, subscribe, and just talk to your friends about politics. Talk to your friends about these more abstract economic issues, these media issues that are not polarizing, that are very centered on measurable ideas, and that you can have a productive conversation about. You don't even have to necessarily mention this podcast by name. Just make sure the ideas go out there. Make sure that there's more learning involved and that more people are conscious of the decisions that they're making every day. And if you do that, thank you.